Hello and welcome to the Brazil Institute podcast, a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the world's number one think tank for regional studies. I'm your host, Bruna Santos, the director of the Brazil Institute. In September, Presidents Joe Biden and Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva met at the UN General Assembly in New York, launching the Partnership for Workers' Rights. This initiative seeks to strengthen labor relations between the U.S. and Brazil, emphasizing a unified approach to global worker challenges. To help us interpret that, what it means and how it may or may not impact Brazil and U.S. labor laws and rights, I'm interviewing today Stanley Gasek. Gasek is a U.S. labor lawyer and has been the senior advisor for global strategic strategies at the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, representing 1.3 million working women and men in the United States and Canada since 2016. He was the deputy and interim director of the ILO office in Brazil from 2011 to 2016, and he has been a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations since 2009 and an active member of the District of Columbia Bar Association since 1979. Stanley received his Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School in 1978 and has a bachelor degree in Social Studies from Harvard College in 1974. He was a visiting instructor in the Sociology Department of Harvard University in 2008 and has written and spoken extensively on comparative Brazilian and American labor relations for 40 years. Um, let me start by asking you about your connections to Brazil and how you became this expert expert in Brazil and labor. Can you tell me a bit more about your story? Well, thank you, Bruna, for the very generous, perhaps over generous uh, introduction. And uh, I, I do feel at ease. I am speaking in my first language, uh, English, rather than my second language, Portuguese, which at least the Brazilian uh, viewers and, and listeners will not need to one can never never escape but uh, really my my introduction my introduction to Brazil directly uh, and it was a kind of epiphany was in 1981 February 1981 and I was uh, uh, I was part of a small delegation of solidarity for uh, then uh, metal worker trade union leader and other leadership of the metal workers of the greater ABC region of Sao Paulo. But that was, of course, none other than Luis Inácio Lula da Silva and, uh, and uh, another brother from the United Auto Workers who is uh, who's now deceased, passed away about 15 years ago, and two, two representatives from Germany, then the West German uh, labor movement, uh, one was from the West German labor movement and the uh, Social Democratic Party of West Germany. We were the delegation of solidarity for Lula and the other defendants who had been charged and then later convicted under the national security law of the military dictatorship. So basically having led a very successful and powerful strike of metal workers and auto workers in the greater ABC region of Sao Paulo and towards the areas of Santo André, Sabrina do Campo, São Caetano, and Diadema, known, known as the Greater APC Region of Sao Paulo, affecting all the major multinational automakers. And uh, this, this strike was basically a certain break with the corporatist labor relations order, order, which was overly mediated and dominated by the labor judiciary. The workers were saying 
we want to stand up for more justice, more economic return, but it was considered at, at the time to be a real threat to the authority of the military dictatorship, and the hammer came down with the national security law. So uh, Lula was later absolved as one of the other defendants in, in 1982, but it was uh, my my introduction to what was emerging as the new unionism, the new democratic movement within Brazil. And I had been the, you know, following the trajectory of, of unionism in Brazil and uh, uh, the, the effort at building a united trade union central in the Cuchu Centralinic of the Comandores. In August of 1983, the founding Congress. I had the honor actually of being the only U.S. unionist there uh, and had the honor of speaking. Was not booed at that time. Later on, I was by other in other in other congresses just because of the mention mention of the United States their committee in the Brazilian left. But I had the honor when I was with the assistant director of international affairs for the USPW in the 1980s and 1990s, and then with the AFL-CIO International Department to be directly involved in bilateral relations with the Brazilian trade union movement the creation of additional centrals. As you mentioned in your generous introduction, I had finally the opportunity to actually live and work in Brazil for an extended period of time between 2011 and 2016 uh, during the Joma uh, Vesaki administration uh, to work in the ILO, ILO office. Uh, the, um, and again, my, uh, finally, finally speaking on a personal note, I have now familial connections to Brazil because my my late wife, who was an activist with, within the uh, Brazilian labor movement in the fight against child labor, and one of the founders, in fact, she's the national uh, the national program for the eradication of child child labor, eradication and, and prevention of child labor. Um, uh, he uh, he came to the United States. We married and we have we have two children who have Brazilian and, and Brazilian and U.S. citizenship. So my senior family really now in my life is in Brazil, particularly in the Brazilian area. And just a final note, I mean, I guess I, Brazil and the United States have many differences, but they have great similarities. And I think that's what has, has always fascinated me. Uh, countries of continental scope in terms of geographical area, uh, a legacy of European colonialism, the scourge of slavery, the formal emancipation of African people from slavery, but still that emancipation continues. Uh, and and immigrants, immigrants from all over the world uh, who have built uh, built these continental towns. Again, throughout the course of the, the relationship between Brazil and, and, and the United States have been generally friendly. After Argentina, the United States was the first nation to recognize and in Brazil, and of course, we will be celebrating the bicentennial of this relationship in the in the next year. But as a, but as a child and as an adolescent, in many ways, I was drawn as many North Americans to Brazil because of the influence of Brazilian culture in the 1960s, bossa nova, MPB, its influence in American jazz, and uh, to continue to be a great fan. Uh, and uh, it was. It was very, very attractive, and the complexity is very attractive. And I'll conclude with the words of the great Tony Jobim when he says that Brazil now is not for beginners, 
and its complexity is what continues to fascinate. Fascinating, fascinating. And I love your note on Bossa Nova and the, the influence that the culture had on you, know, you. Because we are so close as societies, the U.S. and Brazil, and sometimes we, we keep like defining U.S.-Brazil relations in geopolitical terms, but there are all, all like a number of other possibilities and windows to look at that. And I think that the labor initiative may inaugurate one of them. But let me ask you a question, like for anyone following, of course, Lula's uh, history and um, career, we all know how labor connects to his career. But some people might be might ask, might ask uh, why, why is labor important for Biden? We know that Biden promised to be one of the most pro-worker and pro-union president in American history. Can you just like explain a little bit to us why is why we can see both presidents coming together, inaugurating an initiative that has not only their has their legacies there, their hearts there, their like commitments. Um, for Lula, we know, but what about Biden? No, it's a very, very good question. I'm certainly not a don't have an expert uh, biographical insight uh, into into Joe Biden and it's exactly although I know basically of his voting record, voting record in the Senate his position as vice president uh, with, uh, with with President Obama uh, being very, very pro-labor, uh, taking positions that have been very, very much in favor in terms of the time for labor law reform, which would empower workers and unions. He has this. I do think, as he's mentioned in his speeches, uh, his background is being very, very close to working class communities. Uh, in Pennsylvania and in Delaware and throughout the country, I think it forged very pro-union consciousness. So he has that uh, uh, he has that to draw on, and I think it influences him, and I, it influences him sincerely. So the um, the uh, the actually the the the, the coincidence, a very a very direct coincidence between these biographies of. President Lula and President Biden make very auspicious this, you know, this this opportunity for real cooperation. And who would have thought there would be cooperation at a geopolitical level with regard to the issue of labor? But for those of us who work with the labor movements and have been advocates for labor rights, uh, we see this, as I have commented earlier, as a as a moment to be seized. It really must be seized. Good. And can you explain a little bit more uh, for us? And I know you were involved in some of the background of the launching of this initiative. Um, can you explain a little more what these shared commitments uh, between Lula and Biden um, are in practical terms and how they may impact uh, workers' right in, rights in both uh, countries? No, this is this is a central question, Bruna, and I. It's it's uh, many ways. I will. I will give a short answer, then a more elaborate and a more elaborate response. Uh, I would say that the the real potential of this initiative, which is very very promising, is really going to depend on its on its implementation. With what I hope will be uh, a a continuing uh, involvement, direct involvement of the union movements of both countries in the implementation of this and also material investment and financing behind behind it. 
the declaration, uh, which was also issued uh, issued by the White House on their site, and it talks about five urgent challenges, five dimensions, uh, which are focused on the first on the core conventions of the ILO, uh, which there was explicit mention within the declaration itself within the White House. The challenges of forced labor and child labor with respect to the core conventions, the core conventions. <laughs> Calling for the eradication in the end to those scourges, but also also the core conventions include freedom of association and collective bargaining, which is considered the Magna Carta of uh, international uh, trading and international rights and international labor law for for the global labor movement, as well as equal remuneration for gender and uh, anti discrimination uh, and. Uh, and also now, uh, as of the last ILO ILO conference in the last year, occupational safety and health, particularly conventions 155 and 187 of the ILO, are considered core conventions. So that's center. That's that is there. Then there's another dimension which mentions occupational safety and health in particular, and uh, trying to uh, enhance more protection. In terms of occupational safety and health, in terms of public and and private investment, talking about decent work and workers being involved directly in the clean energy transition, and then there is a there is a there is a dimension very critical about technology and digital transitions. Obviously, we in the labor movement say that there must there must be full social dialogue and full bargaining over the decision and the effect. Of the implementation of technologies and work, which are transforming many industries, including uh, the industries which my union represents, and then a, a fifth dimension, which is very critical, which really focuses, and it's among obviously the core conventions of the ILO, but is playing fighting workplace discrimination, but particularly for women, LGBTQI plus persons, and. Uh, and very marginalized and oppressed racial and ethnic groups, and an enhancement of diversity in the world of work. These are all these are all dimensions which the labor movements of both countries and the governments of both countries, and we hope that the governments and civil societies of the entire world can embrace. The there is the question is going to be the the implementation. There is a fact sheet which the White House had issued, which has some very important language, saying that we intend to work collaboratively, collaboratively across our governments and with our union partners. I'm reading from their from their statement to advance these urgent issues over the next year. Now, working with trade union partners, we think is key. Uh, so we we hope that there's going to be a very active involvement. There are already in terms of the trade union participants there at the launching of the partnership in New York last month, uh, we had our own meeting of AFL-CIO and union representatives of the United States with the president of the six uh, most representative labor centrals in Brazil. And we took that we, we all took the position that we need to communicate with it amongst ourselves about how this, how this initiative should be implemented. But the question of question of financing investment is very very critical, and a uh, concern of the labor movements and a very personal concern of mine is that I definitely hope 
that something can be put in place that is going to be durable and uh, the the obvious can uh, can withstand whatever political vagaries there are in both in both countries and particularly considering the election cycle approaching us in 2024 in the United States. Sure. And one one other question: How does um, considering like the difference between um, labor laws and economic systems between Brazil and the United States? Do you feel that the Biden Lula Workers Agreement uh, can be a substantial step toward more real cooperation between both countries? And just another like very specific question: Do you think it opens um, a window or maybe create, re, reopen the discussion to rediscuss the labor reform enacted in 2017 in Brazil? Yes, I mean, I mean I, yes, I, definitely yes to your latter question. I mean, I think that's going to be, uh, I think that should be very, very much part of the discussion of the partnership between uh, the United States and Brazil in terms of advancing this initiative, as well as, I would say, labor law reform in the United which I hope will not be will not be dormant. Uh, a very very important uh, legislation was approved by the House of Representatives in 2021 in the United States, called the Pro Act, uh, the Pro Organizing Act, uh, which, without getting into a lot of details, uh, would would be a great step forward and actually uh, uh, help great better control what is. Employer interference, direct employer interference and repression in the unionization process in the United States, which I would argue is actually the, the major reason as to why you have in the United States a basic, almost an unprecedented public approval of this. With recent, recent Gallup polls showing that more than 70% of Americans generally, and that would include not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans, thinking that unions are important. That worker organization, collective organization, is is important for for justice and the good of, and the good of, and the good of the economy. Yet the density, trade union density in the United States overall is is at around ten percent. It's over thirty percent in the public sector, but then you look at the private sector, it's at six percent, slightly less. And so you aggregate those figures, you come to a union density rate around ten percent, and really. Union density, because in effect, unions for the purposes of collective bargaining uh, don't exist but for their authorization or or their having been a unionization of workers bargaining unit by bargaining unit, a structure very different from Brazil's. Uh, there, the rate of unionization also almost has everything to do with the scope of collective bargaining coverage. Different in Brazil, different in, different in many places. but to get back to a more fundamental question, given the great differences between Brazil and the United States, it's something I've dedicated much of my life of studying and commenting on and, and publishing on, the Brazil thing having you know, still in great part a state corporate structure of labor relations with the state having much more of a direct role within the substantive outcome of social dialogue and collective bargaining. In the United States, where the state is far more distant. And with Brazil looking at its constitutional and infra-constitutional system, having always far more protection, at least formally, uh, than the United States, um, these 
are these systems too different? And I would I would argue that there have been very important convergences between both systems, which meant for cooperation and dialogue and exchange of best practices all the more important. One of the most, unfortunately, nefarious had been in the area of trading and financing, with to make put things very simply and more in American terms, with the ending of the compulsory or trading and contribution, which was referred to more colloquially as the trading in tax in Brazil, this uh, created a real crisis for the sustainability of unions in Brazil. And moreover, there had been uh, jurisprudence in the Superior Labor Courts, uh, as well as in the Supreme Federal Court, the STF, basically saying that even collectively bargained assistant contributions not unlike agency shop or union security clauses in the United States, that those could only be imposed on direct voluntary members and not be imposed on non-members. And the whole argument behind those sorts of clauses is that if workers in a professional category or in a, in a, in a bargaining unit are benefiting directly and are covered and being represented by a union, even though they, uh, they, they exercise their right to negative freedom of association, that is to say, the right to not join the union. Nevertheless, they should contribute something, you know, for their collective, for their collective representation, the benefits of their collective representation. Uh, there was jurisprudence in Brazil which basically was saying that is wrong. So we have we've contended within 24 states of the union uh, with legislation which basically says that unions in the United States and the private sector covering the National Labor Relations Act cannot bargain those kinds of union security clauses, or I would say pay the freight of your collective representation clauses or fair share, fair share clauses. Uh, the same sorts of clauses existed within public sector bargaining at the state, municipal, and county level, but uh, unfortunately due to a uh, Supreme Court decision in 2018 called Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, that those clauses were found to be uh, unconstitutional. So you had almost five, half of the states of the union for the private sector, for private sector workers, uh, covered by the National Labor Relations Act, union security clauses could not be negotiated, and in effect, uh, no, no kind of agency or union security in, in the public sector. And then Brazil, with the ending of its trade union tax, and with the federal judiciary finding even union security type clauses not to be not to be valid, you had a convergence of right to work regimes in both countries. Um, this is, I think, the American labor movement has much to say about how we cope with these situations in the so-called right to work. And right to work state. Now, in real time in Brazil, with a recent decision of the federal federal court, federal Supreme Court, the SKF found, found recently that those sorts of clauses or assistance contribution clauses will no longer be considered unconstitutional and will no longer be considered to be a violation of freedom of association. So that you'll put a lot of wind behind the sails. For the trade union centrals in terms of their negotiation of what's being called now in Brazil not a reforma or a contra reforma or a counter reform, but an actualização of kind of an updating or a refitting 
uh, of the labor law, of the labor law, given what had been certainly for the trade union movements and for many workers in Brazil, a very, very disastrous reform in 2017. Um, so there are many, there are many areas of cooperation. And but still, even with even with union security type clauses that we call the United States now maybe being legalized by the judiciary in Brazil, the Brazilian labor movement is at a critical juncture in that because of this 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 financing crisis, they really have to organize voluntary members in order to sustain themselves. And there, I think there's going to be a lot of exchange. The, both our labor movement in the United States, we have to organize in order to exist for collective bargaining purposes. And Brazil is a little bit closer now, although with uh, with the Supreme Court finding a court finding uh, union security type clauses to be legal and to be constitutional, that certainly will help. But organizing in order to survive effectively and to be I think brings our movements together. And then another aspect where I think the U.S. labor movement, where we have collective bargaining, where we can contribute is leading to more stable labor relations in terms of uh, our whole system that we've developed of private arbitration, including arbitration, adjustment of, of individual disputes, individual contract disputes, which we consider individual contract disputes in Brazil. But uh, we have within our collective bargaining agreements the systems of grievance and arbitration, which can resolve individual, individual uh, disputes which continue to continue to be a major burden of the Brazilian justice system. Uh, but, uh, but there is also much to be learned on both sides. And what Brazil can teach the United States is a very, very effective uh, a legacy of social dialogue, which goes on at the national level. Uh, political, I would not, I'm not gonna say partisan, but political mobilization for and by workers is very, very, is very, very advanced. Plus, and I will conclude here, Brazilian labor movement has been and continues to be key in assisting us in terms of our own organization and collective bargaining relationships with Brazilian multinational companies operating in the United States. And there are, there are a fair number of them. And by the way, I'll just conclude by noting that uh, within my union, the United Food and Commercial Workers, for packing house workers, our biggest employer is Brazilian. Our biggest employer, organized employer, is Jotabayasi, is JBS, City Boy. And also with marketing having national beef company a number of years ago, a major, major uh, Brazilian meat producer, they they now they they are among um, they are among our our uh, the employers that we have they we that we have unionized. So we have a direct direct union Brazilian presence in terms of our own membership in our union. One one final question, uh, since we are almost reaching thirty minutes already. Um, what are the if you were like to define the labor unions in the 21st century and how different in terms of tactics they are from the labor unions in the 20th century because when it comes to the imagination of people the tactics may be totally different in terms of how they organize how they disseminate the message the striking boycotting that that would all all be different now 
So I want to I want to hear from you how how different is the is the labor movement in the 21st century compared to the 20th century? Well, there's much. I mean, there's much within the labor movement in terms of that is going to be is be basic, and even with all of these <laughs> very fast changes in forces of production and technological change, uh, which which the labor movement, the modern labor labor movement since the 19th century has had to contend with. Uh, in industrialized societies, this continues. Uh, I will say that whatever you want to call it, there will always be, there is also, in terms of market economies and a, and, uh, a capitalist economy, uh, there always will be this tension between capital and labor. And with labor uh, always being put in the position to indicate its return. Of, of what it produces and what it produces for wealth. That will, that is existing in real time in the United States, in Brazil, throughout the world. So, and tactics and basic tactics and, uh, of the trade union movement uh, and methods in terms of collective bargaining and the right to strike, they are there. What, what technology has done in transformation and, and, and creation of new jobs and also Many new jobs, which are we would argue are misclassified in Brazil, the United States, throughout the world, uh, particularly of gig workers, and and uh, basically of, of of tech workers, uh, burgeoning. These are the burgeoning burgeoning industries that we see uh, that uh, they have been misclassified as independent contractors, when in fact there is a dominant employment relationship, and that continues to be a challenge. But given these technological changes and basically a digital a digital society and digital communication, uh, the labor movement is demanding that uh, workers have a say in terms of the decisions to implement those technologies as well as the effects of those technologies. But also, the labor movements in both the United States and Brazil, more and more, we have to use digital methods in order to organize, in order to reach workers, uh, and that those. Those methods uh, uh, are, are being used, and being used, uh, and we, and, and, and within my own union, we have our own uh, digital uh, digital information center and organizing center, which is, is dedicated precisely to using these methods in order to reach workers, which remain all the more more critical uh, during the pandemic period. Uh, and we're still now we're still in a post-pandemic period and still in a state of caution and, and alarm. Uh, the health, the, uh, the things that the things that can improve for the health and safety of our societies and for the workers and our frontline workers and our members were in the front lines. We were our workers uh, in our in our, in our certainly were amongst the essential essential workforce. But now it appears to be some stability and more protection, but also also looking to uh, continue to make the case for more protection and measures to be taken preventive measures to be taken in the areas of public health. Um, there has been, there has been, I think, all the more, uh, all, all the more implementation and incorporation of new digital platforms and technological methods, which the labor movement has to use in order to, in order to organize, in order to... Excellent, Stan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Muito obrigada. 
We need to leave it here. Thank you for sharing your insights and perspective with our listeners here on the Brazil Institute podcast. Thank you so much.